they're all in synchronicity. I mean, they're all in cycle for the first time in over 400 years, which means th this is an amplification of multi-cycles that have high correlation to dramatic increases in weather volatility. You know, you talk about stocks and and and, and where volatility, you, you know there's times where things come together that create the big move, the big event. And those who follow stock cycles, you know, are know some of those cycles and 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 are really good at it. Like you said, they have a, a way of figuring these things out and just have a knack for understanding when a crash is coming, not because someone else said it, just because they, they their cycles are lining up for it or or vice versa, you know. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like, and we want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. So please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Harry Krishnan. Thanks very much for the introduction, Niels. Uh, my guest today is Sean Hackett. President of Hackett Financial Advisors in, I guess, sunny Boca Raton, Florida, and agricultural commodity experts. It's great to have you on, Sean, and uh, I'm sure we'll have a great conversation today. I'm really looking forward to it. Agricultural uh, commodities, pricing, farmers, and weather are really things I am very passionate about, and um, I'm really thankful to get this opportunity to do this with you. Well, why don't we start with a kind of a broad brushstroke? A lot of people have come to me and said that, um, what are you going to do? How, how should I invest if stocks and bonds do nothing over the next 10 years? Where are opportunities going to arise? And agriculture was an obvious place. Well, maybe not an obvious, but it was a place that several people tell me to look in. And I think um, there is a pretty strong base case for investing or having some exposure to agriculture. But rather than my... Um, babbling on about it, maybe you can present that case for us. Well, throughout history, there's always a, a give and take between stocks, bonds, and commodities as a whole, including agriculture. We know that when commodity prices are doing well, like they did in the 2000s, like they did in the 70s, like they did in the 30s, stock prices don't tend to do well. Profit margins get squeezed. It's very hard for companies to actually earn more money. 
Um, and um, and as such, you know, we get this period of outperformance for commodities um, and agriculture commodities. Specifically in the agriculture, what tends to really drive the cycle um, is weather volatility, meaning, you know, increased extreme droughts, extreme floods, um, extreme winters, you know, things that make it more difficult to produce food on a regular basis. Um, and, you know, the Dust Bowl in the 1930s is a classic example of a weather volatility event that led to a big rise in agricultural prices uh, back then. The global cooling scare of the 1970s brought was another big, people forget, you know, we were worried about freezing to death in the 70s and now with global warming, it just seems like the pendulum swings back and forth. Um, now it's a global warming scare that seems to have excited the market with, uh, with weather volatility, but I hope by the time we're done with our discussion, people might appreciate that there's something unusual about this particular weather cycle in terms of that there's a series of cycles that exist in synchronicity today that have not come together for over 400 years. So this particular weather cycle, we think, is going to be uh, you know, a, a very extreme event above normal uh, weather volatility that we've seen in past periods of outperformance for agriculture. And as such, I think in the commodity space as a whole, because of that, agriculture is probably going to be the leader um, in that space. Whereas in the 2000s, it wasn't the leader. Energy was the leader in the night in the 2000s. I think agriculture could be the leader here because weather is simply an order of magnitude off the charts from even prior extreme cycles. Like I said, going you have to go back 400 years the last time we saw something in the 1600s quite like it. Well, that brings me to the question. Can you say anything about um, the sensitivity of crop yields to, let's say, temperature? In other words, if, broadly speaking, Brazil were one degree hotter on average next year, to what, what impact would that have on uh, corn yields and coffee yields and things like that? Or does one have to be a lot more granular than this? Well, Threat history when the climate when the planet is in a warming phase, production goes up a lot. Warm is good for crops. Um, it allows more acreage to be put into work in areas that would be too cold under prior conditions. It allows for longer growing cycles, meaning you have a lot more time to grow a crop. Um, the more time you have, the more yield you can put on. Um, so we we there's endless examples of periods of warming that have led to a boom for yields in agriculture. It's when temperatures either flatten out or cool down that we actually get significant reduction in yields because compression of the growing cycle, meaning you get a, a, a low, smaller window to grow crops, you get greater frosts um, at the end of a crop, earlier, I mean, earlier frosts at the end, later frost at the beginning, also creating damage. Um, you tend to get um, more violent. When you, when you have a, a colder climate, you tend to have um, more violent weather volatility because what drives this cooler weather is actually a change in the upper airflow pattern of the northern and southern jet streams that's driven by the activity of the sun. Uh, normally, we have a zonal flow that tends to create kind of normal weather, comes in, it comes out, normal volatility. But when we get into a grand solar cycle minimum, which is what they call these periods of lower sunspot activity, we get a north and south undulating jet stream, meridional jet stream, which creates 
this much more stagnant weather pattern and much greater weather volatility as hot meets cold and, and continues to create you know, more violent reactions over time throughout the weather cycle. And that's really what drives very difficult times in growing food. And if you look at the historical yields that we've seen during periods of warming, they go through the roof. And when we have periods of cooling, they, they, they really contract significantly. So we believe we're entering a period where weather volatility is on the rise, and we believe temperatures are actually going to start to uh, decrease over time, making the environment much more challenging and difficult to grow food. Now, already since 2019, when this grand solar cycle minimum began, yields are flat to down globally, uh, meaning we have not been able to grow yields in the last three to four years. So that's a big change from what we've seen for the last 40 or 50 years, where we've just been able to grow food pretty regularly at will. Uh, which is more important, temperature or volatility of temperature? In other words, you said warm is good for crops, but let's say that the swings within the growing season become amplified. Is that a net good thing or is it? Uh... I, I, I would say that overall weather volatility is the biggest contributor to yield declines. Um, crops can handle weather when it's more, you know, in a range, but if you throw extreme heat or stream drought, and then you put flooding rains on it 30 days later, that it just, you know, the way nature operates, it, it's not, think of the human body. I just went from 80 degrees. I was in Nebraska last week. It was eight degrees with 30 mile hour winds. I had a very difficult time adjusting to that. <laughs> All right. Very Fair difficult enough. time. Um, and yeah. so that plants do the same thing. They just, they, they, they simply go into shock, quite frankly, uh, when you have these wide variety of conditions that they, they can't, they don't get enough time to react to. Now, that brings us back to a point that you made about sunspots. Now, my limited understanding is that sunspots are caused by magnetic flux within the sun, or, or basically um, high fluctuations in the magnetic field in the sun that cause some energetic particles not to be emitted from the surface, so you get these dark spots. And that, that that's somehow destabilizing to the weather on Earth. Can you say a little bit about that and what the significance of a large number of sunspots might be in terms of creating instability um, here on Earth? The biggest thing with when you have the sun firing at a maximum level um, is it creates these big solar storms that tend to, you know, flood the atmosphere and, you know, uh, flood the Earth's surface and you know those kinds of big fluxes of solar uh, wind or solar energy, you know, tend to cause all kinds of issues with uh, tectonic plates and earthquakes and volcanoes, and and you know it blows out satellites and and that sort of thing. Um, you know that's typically what, um, and and it creates um, typically hotter, warmer temperatures. When you have what we have now, which is a lower sunspot activity, meaning that the, the magnetic field strength of the sun is actually weakened and we're getting less solar activity, um, meaning that the solar radiation hitting the atmosphere is 50% is, is of normal, uh, that, act, that has the opposite effect, meaning that it cools the atmosphere of the Earth and cold air sinks. So the atmosphere of the Earth actually compresses the, you know, it, it shrinks 
So if you think of a the jet stream as a rubber band around a sphere and you shrink the sphere, the rubber band, instead of being you know, nice and zonal, will get crimped into this meridional jet stream, the north to south undulating airflow pattern. And when that happens, it allows the polar vortex of the north pole and the south pole to destabilize and weaken. And it allows that cold Arctic air to come further south or further north, depending on which hemisphere you're talking about. It's called a polar vortex, which you've heard a lot about in the last few years. Sudden stratospheric warming events, which is where you get the, the sudden warming of the stratosphere we had last year that led to the late ending winter, which we forecasted, by the way, um, based upon our cycle work. Um, that allowed you know, for temperatures to be 30, 40 degrees below normal all the way down into Texas because it drives that air down that normally wouldn't be able to come down because of the change in the activity of the sun. It also, because the magnetic field strength of the sun weakens, it allows these highly charged galactic cosmic rays to hit the atmosphere and hit the Earth's surface in much greater concentrations. We show charts to our customers that go over how those concentrations have been growing rapidly and how those concentrations lead to increased cloud cover, increased storm potential, increased flooding activity, and they also have a history of increasing large volcanic eruptions. We've talked about this for years, about how once you get into a grand solar cycle amendment, you tend to get volcanic eruptions that are uh, you know, much, much larger than normal. In fact, if you go back to 1400 to the present, there have been eight of these we call volcanic explosivity index eruptions, VEI-6 or higher. They go from one to eight. Um, and all but one have occurred during periods of lower solar activity. And what's amazing is we've just seen one this year in February. Tonga eruption was a VEI-6 volcanic eruption occurring exactly when we would expect to see something like that in a grand solar cycle minimum. And it won't be the last one we see. We will see at least two more based upon the historical activity of past grand solar cycles. And these volcanic eruptions have very, very significant impacts to global climate um, on a two to three year, even four year basis, um, because these aerosols that get pumped into the stratosphere sit there and stay there for a while and really create a lot of havoc. So, so, so it's very interesting how all these things are connected and work together to create this weather volatility. I always hear people say, well, Sean, the, 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 the fluctuations of the sun are so small, it, it doesn't have an impact and that's what the narrative is, but it's not the actual, it's not the actual sun's output that's causing the weather volatility, it's the changes in these cosmic rays, these upper airflow patterns, you know, that actually creates the weather volatility, not the actual uh, uh, energy itself. Okay. Okay. Which brings me to a point that I need to understand as well, which is, as I understand it, the research about sunspots shows that the average temperature change when there's a high number of sunspots counted on the surface, on the surface of the sun is pretty small. It's it, on average, sunspots don't have a huge impact on global temperatures, but what you seem to be suggesting is that instability is induced by the presence or the lack of presence of sunspots. And the level of excitation of this ball of ionized gas, which I guess is what the sun is, uh, is quite 
highly correlated with sunspots and over short horizons if there are things like volcanoes those inherently will be destabilizing to the weather and to crop yields over horizons that are actually investable is is that kind of tra uh, triangulating all the points you've made it is um un undoubtedly that's uh, very well put the other thing that you have to think of you know what drives climate on earth but what drives climate on Earth is not only the upper airflow pattern that we've just discussed a little bit about, it's also the sea surface temperatures of the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean. Are they hot? Are they cold? Is one hot and one cold? Is the other hot, the other one cold? Are they both cold? These Which brings us to La Nina and El Nino, I guess. Well, that's actually Which is something a, a, you've written quite a bit about. Yes. The La Nina El Nino is a subset of this. So let I, I if you if, if it's okay, I would like to start on the the bigger picture. There's this global river. So think of the Gulf Stream off the east coast of the US. The Gulf Stream is part of this Thermaline natural river flowing through the whole ocean. It equilibrates warm seawater in the in the center of the of the earth in the equator to the north. And we know that we have high tide, low tides every day. We know that that the tides or the currents of the ocean are impacted from outer space. The sun, the position of the sun against the position of the moon relative to the earth and the activity of the sun determine whether these um, currents are going faster than normal, normal, or slower than normal. Now, because the Pacific is larger, it takes a little more doing to get that thing moving and the Atlantic Ocean is uh, smaller. So they're both around what I would call these 40-year uh, cycles of where they would warm for 40 years in sea surface temperatures, then they'll cool for 40 years, but they're off cycle. They don't go together, they go in an off phase cycle. So that's why you can have warm, 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 cold, 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 and 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 wet those two big bodies of water what condition they're in, what phase they're in relative to each other has a huge impact on temperatures of the earth because if the sea surface temperatures are warm, the air is warm. If the sea surface temperatures are cold, the air is cold. And La Nina El Nino is a manifestation of the sea surface temperatures of the central Pacific, central East Pacific of, you know, that, that, that's a, a microcosm of those particular sea surface temperatures. And the, and the significance of this uh, Pacific, um, sort of the trade winds across the Southern Pacific or the, the Equatorial Pacific, why are they so significant when you're dealing with such a big, complex system? Do they, do they just sort of relate um, um, Asia and South America in terms of relative temperatures and the ability to uh, have fisheries or grow crops and things? How, how does that, why is that so significant? Why do people focus on it so much? Well, if you have a negative, if, if you have a, if the Pacific is colder than normal, and it has been for the last 15 years, by the way, you have much more frequent and longer ranging La Ninas, and you have much less frequent and shorter duration El Ninos. And the La Nina pattern means hot, dry weather, typically in the, in the growing season for South America, hot, dry weather, typically in the growing season for North America. Um, and it means a lot of rain in Asia, typically. 
And so t- overall, because North and South America are so important to growing most of the big crops that are traded on the market and that people focus on, La Nina is a much more detrimental weather pattern than is El Nino. El Nino tends to produce big crops in North America and big crops in South America. So that's why knowing what phase we're in in the Pacific is so very, very important. It doesn't mean you can't get an El Nino. just means the base case is more La Nina, less El Nino. And then if you go to a positive phase, we have warmer Pacific Ocean on a regular basis. You have a lot more El Ninos. Um, so like the Western half of the U.S. has been has been experiencing a quasi-semi-drought for the last 15 years to the point where now we have water reserves getting dangerously low. And then, and, then, and and the number one question is, is this, is this a permanent change or have we seen this before? My view is we've seen this before and we're, and, and it's actually getting close to the end of the cycle as the PDO is getting ready um, to flip to a, a positive phase as the long-term cycles would project. Yeah, this is massively interesting to me, even putting my finance hat on, because it's kind of a regime identifier or a regime indicator in the same way that maybe you take a handful of signals in in the markets, you know, the VIX or volatility levels, credit spreads, um, sovereign debt spreads, and so on. And you say, well, either the world is calm or the markets are calm or they're volatile and different strategies work in the two regimes. And it seems like there's a natural analogy between regime identification, let's say in the El Nino-La Nina case, and um, crop yields in the same way that there is between the types of outcomes you get in risk-off versus risk-on regimes. And I, I, it's, a, it's a really interesting analogy. Is that kind of what you're pushing, the direction you're pushing towards with this? It is. You know, if, if we understand the base case, the big picture, what's the sun doing? What's the upper airflow doing? What are the oceans doing? What's the base, you know, these are longer term trends. What's the base case? And what does that generally mean for natural disasters, for weather volatility? You know, if you're in the insurance business, this would be really, really important information on how you price your product and the kind of things that producers would want to have as protective measures during, depending on when they're at higher risk for these extreme events to take place. We've already seen quite a few of them. And it, all of a sudden the insurance companies seem they don't they, they haven't quite they haven't factored in that we would have five one in one hundred year events in 10 years. <laughs> you know, and, and the reality is that they, that they their actuarial tables are correct, but they don't understand the cycle we're in. We're actually gonna get a lot more of these quote unquote one in one hundred year events in this cycle because the cycle actually doesn't it, it accounts for more of that. You know what I'm trying to say? Um, so, the, so the way I look at the Pacific Ocean, Pacific Ocean is really important about La Nina, El Nino, and how that impacts um, heat, drought, rain, that sort of thing. But the overall temperature, the overall temperature of the Earth is mainly driven by the Atlantic Ocean. The Atlantic Ocean is hot; you're going to be in a warming phase. If the Atlantic Ocean is cold; you're going to be in a cold phase, um, and that really drives um, the long and, and, and you know the I show charts of historical periods over the last 180 years when the AMO, they call it the AMO, Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation, which is the sea surface temperature of the Atlantic. When it's cold, temperatures are, you know, blue all over the place. And when it's warm, they're red all over the place. Well, we've been in a warm AMO for the last 
25 years. So we've had very warm climate because the AMO is warm, as it all naturally was expected to be based upon the cycles. But the 40-year cycle that's driven by the sun and the moon relative to the earth um, is expected to turn negative, meaning that the Atlantic Ocean is expected to move into its negative cold phase around 2025. And when that kicks in, then we shift not only to a more La Nina-centric, continuing that La Nina-centric pattern, but then we move into a much colder uh, weather pattern, climate trend. And we already discussed colding a, a cooling environment with weather volatility is much worse than a warming climate with weather volatility. The last time we had a negative Pacific decadal oscillation and a negative uh, Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation was between 1965 and 1982. Anyone that was born in that time or lived through that time understands how cold it was. Growing degree days in the United States, just as an example, on average was 134 days in the 1970s. It's now, on average, 182 days. We have gained significant increases in growing days because of the warmer climate that we've had, because the Atlantic turned warm you know, uh, after we got through the mid-1980s and led to a dramatic expansion. We were growing corn in North Dakota, for example. They wouldn't have dreamed of growing corn in North Dakota in the 70s. They would have had a zero crop every year because it was too cold and the, and the, and the, and the growing season was too short. Um, and so, so all this ground in Canada and Northern Europe, for example, that's been brought into production and growing big, big yields like it never used to, that's all going to reverse. And that's going to be a, that's going to be a contributing factor to why these global yields are going to come under pressure. Now, it doesn't mean every year is bad. Does it mean you don't have a good growing season? You will have some growing seasons that are good. It just means the base case is you're going to have a whole lot more trouble than not. And we've been used to growing yields one and a half to two percent on average every year, every decade, every twenty years, every thirty years, and and we've been just keeping ourselves just above the curve. If we just even if we still grow yields but grow it half as much we have a big problem and uh, and how uh, you know, we handle that you know we, we we just have a big problem on our hands and i don't you know the just in time inventory ag system that we created because we wanted to be more efficient at capital usage than having everything stockpiled for 12 to 18 years uh months and have it all spoil and all the cost to go associated with storing grain you know we went to this perfect system that everything is just well what happens when we have these repeated issues and we didn't have it. We don't have that 12 months to 18 months of stockpiling. You don't have any buffer stock. You have nowhere to go. And so my belief is we are now have begun a stock rebuilding uh, ag system again to where getting back to where, where everybody wants more food on hand um, than they did before to guard against these risks that the pandemic, by the way, brought out in a, in a way that nothing else could really express how vulnerable countries can be if they don't have enough online and something goes wrong with a just-in-time inventory system. Perfect. Well, I'd like to make a comment and then ask a question, which is, first, the comment is one thing I really like about what you're saying and doing, um, having read some of your reports, is it's a bit like in the stock market world. Um, there's no one model that predicts whether the S&P is going to go up or down tomorrow. And so that led a lot of academics to go in the direction of saying, well, 
things are unpredictable, markets are efficient, blah, blah, blah. Fair enough. But the practitioners in the field have a handful of tricks or a handful of systems, models, and so on, that they use to somewhat reliably make money over time. Of course, there's a lot of noise. What you're saying is has an analogy in the sense that there are fluid flow equations that are hideously complex and nonlinear that in theory, if solvable, would predict the weather going out a reasonable horizon. But none of these models are in working order or are perhaps not even solvable. Um, so really what you need is a handful of reliable uh, techniques to try and um, come up with a kind of a unified view as to what you think is going to happen in a given region. And I think that's fantastic. Um, if I tried to push the envelope a bit further and say, if you had to pick four or five indicators that you think are most significant in predicting um, crop yields in various parts of the globe, what would they be and how would you mix them? Certainly, um, El Nino, La Nina are a very important to get that right. Um, you know, are we going to be in one of them or are we going to be in a neutral phase? Sometimes you're in neither, by the way. Um, you can have quite a bit of time where you're in those time frames. Having a very clear understanding, where are we with, with the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean? Because that'll tell you where problems are going to be more likely to occur than not. Um, there's other indicators like the quasi-biennial oscillation, not to get too far afield, but these are very, very strong atmospheric winds that oscillate every 27 to 32 months, west to east, east to west. Um, that drives a lot of how these, I always say this to everybody, no two La Ninas are exactly the same. They're not exactly the same. No two El Ninas are exactly the same. I see so many people project, oh, it's a La Nina, that means everything is gonna be just like the last one. It's not. This year is nothing like last year and we're still in La Nina because there's other variables that come into play as to what, um, how they, this, as you said, this fluid system interacts with each other, but one of them is the quasi biennial oscillation. So as an example, when the quasi biennial oscillation is going east to west, like it was last year, it tends to produce a more amplified jet stream. It tends to produce a weakening of the polar vortex. It tends to produce more volatile, cold, extreme, late ending winters when we get that La Nina combination with a, they call the negative QBO. Um, and that was one of the re ways that we made our forecast last year, why we expected a very late ending winter, chaotic planting season um, for the you know, for planting in, in, in the Northern hemisphere. And why we thought that grain prices, you know, had the possibility of spike trading into some kind of a high during that time frame, And we kind of nailed the forecast. Now this year, we still have La Nina, although it, it's, it looks like it's starting to wane, but we have a positive quasi-binary oscillation. That means short winter, early spring. It means you could have some cold weather, but not the polar vortex frigid weather like we saw last year. Um, it, you know, you're not going to likely get the destabilization of the polar vortex. You're not likely going to get the sudden strife forming event. Probably are very, very low. So that's just one variable that because it's different this year from last year, it changes everything about what weather we can expect and where some of the extremes may be. Last year, Brazil was immersed in a drought. This year, they're having fantastic rains, although Argentina is still in a drought. So these little nuances 
And I'm not going to sit here. I don't spend my day worrying about, hey, next Tuesday morning, this is what the weather's going to be. That's not that important. What's important for my producers, for my farmers, for the market isn't that. It's what's the big picture? You know, what is the big picture weather um, uh, trend are we dealing with? Because if you get that right, if you get that overall picture right, you're going to get the production right and the for and the price direction correct. Um, and that's what we try to focus on is, like I said, these the the big trends, not, you know, are we going to have a snowstorm next Tuesday morning? I don't know how to do that. And I'm not trying to project that. But I do have a very good handle on a short winter, which means if we have an early spring with some good moisture, we could have an unbelievable planting season, which would create the potential for some record crops if we have moisture. And so the big question mark that we might want to, that we might talk about is, you know, are we going to get that El Nino to kick in in 23 and provide that moisture or are, are, are we not going to get that El Nino? Because whether we get that or not get that has a lot to do whether this drought continues further or whether we get a reprieve in 2023 um, or not. So, so three of the factors you would focus on would be the El Nino, La Nina regime at this point, sunspot activity or the number of sunspots and also this quasi biennial oscillator cycle. And, and, and the base cool. case of, of the Pacific and Atlantic. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Um, do, do the mega grain companies of the world, the ADMs, the Cargills, the Bungays, whomever, do they focus on this stuff? Do they have teams, legions of people doing this or do they, are they missing the boat here? I would hope that I'm not the only one that, that, understands these longer terms. I mean, it's not like this is uh, a secret. Thousands and thousands and thousands of papers have been written by some of the smartest people that have ever, you know, walked on this earth that have done research. I mean, I don't, I just took all this information and found what I believe to be the most reliable, highly correlated cycles and just piggybacked on these really smart people that came up with those stuff and brought it all into a working model that people can utilize without having to read thousands and thousands of papers and try and decipher these very technical papers that oftentimes read like hieroglyphics instead of human English, you know? Yeah, to me too. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So that, so to me, that, that that's really the key is is you know getting into a, a to you know what really matters and then and just and just understanding when we're in sync and when we're not in sync. So sometimes these cycles are off cycle, which means they kind of cancel each other out. And sometimes they're in cycle, which means they accentuate each other. Then what I always try to really, really bring home to everyone is how this sea surface temperature cycle of the PDO and the AMO, the grand solar cycle minimum, you know, this Gleisberg cycle that we might talk about here in a little bit, what that is, they're all in synchronicity. I mean, they're all in cycle for the first time in over 400 years, which means this is an amplification of multi-cycles that have high correlation to dramatic increases in weather volatility. Um, that's when you know, you know you talk about stocks and 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 where volatility. You, you know, there's times where things come together that create the big the the big move, the big the big event. And those who follow stock cycles, you know, are know some of those cycles and, and and are really good at it. Like you said, they have a, a way of figuring these things out and, and just have a knack for understanding when a crash is coming, not because someone else said it, just because they, they their cycles are lining up for it or or vice versa, you know? 
So it's a bit like the resonance that you'd see if you had a wooden bridge and multiple people were walking across at just the right distance. Yep. A parse. Now, we've talked a lot about the weather, but you do a heck of a lot of stuff other than that. So I'd, I'd like to go into a little bit of that. One of them is, um, I guess I'd call it positioning risk. You do look at the commitment of trader reports uh, for the various commodity futures markets that you track. Without presupposing anything, uh, can you tell me when they come out, uh, who's listed in them, and how it all adds up? Well, first of all, making a forecast. So let's just say, you know, with my forecast last year, late in the winter chaotic planting season, uh, just because that forecast is made doesn't mean you should enter any market at that exact moment in time. We know that markets go up and they go down and, you know, especially in commodities, there's expiration dates on contracts, on options, you know, and so you really, really have to be careful of micromanaging time frame against risk against, you know, playing a particular trend that you're, that you're talking about. We know that capital flowing in and out of commodity markets, ag markets, is a huge component to what a particular market's going to trade for. So every Friday at 3.30 Eastern time, the CFTC, the Commitment Traders, comes out um, and puts out positioning of speculators, positioning of commercials, positioning of small traders. They even break it down into swap traders, uh, managed money. There's a whole slew of different participants that they um, break down how much are they long? How much are they short? What's their net positions? What's the open interest? So who who sends this data? Is it the brokers? The prime brokers send the data to the CFTC? It's required that if you have uh, positions that are of a certain size, you have to report them to the CFTC by law. Okay. So if I'm a, a hedge fund, I'm a spec commodities hedge fund, and I'm trading through some prime broker, um, the prime broker will have classified me as a spec speculator, and then they have to aggregate all the people like me uh, and their long and short positions, and then send them to the CFTC every week. Basically, that's that's what you're saying. That is correct. Now, I've tried to use this data quite a bit uh, over the years, and it is useful. But one difficulty that was pointed out to me and that I found is that some people don't kind of defy classification. Some entities aren't really specs or hedges. They do both under the same umbrella. Does is that a problem? Does the noise cancel out, or how have, have you found it to be a very effective tool? In agriculture, it's a very effective tool because it's very clear who's a commercial operator and who's not a commercial operator. You know, I don't think a hedge fund is growing corn or storing corn or you know, doing those kinds of things. <laughs> not um, that I've seen. No, no not that I've seen. And then what I always try to emphasize about, we created what we call a smart money algorithm tool. I mean, we literally handpicked certain entities and we, that we had a high correlation to getting, you know, to, to positioning at bottoms and tops. Then we normalized it by dividing by the open interest because we know open interest over time has been growing. So what was a record long position 10 years ago is now a small, you you have to aggregate it so that you can look at the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s and actually say, you know, is this a large position long or short relative to history? The only way you can do this, you have to normalize it to the open interest. Then we are really a big fan of relative value. We love to look at corn relative to all commodities. 
um, because we know that nothing lives in a vacuum. Everything's priced off of everything else. And there's, you know, so I view the relative value of a commodity like I, you view the book to value, uh, price to book value of a stock, for example, you know, just so, so is corn cheap relative to all of the commodities based upon its historical precedent? Now, just because it's cheap doesn't mean you go right out and buy corn. It just means it, it's a market that is undervalued and undervalued markets have a history of creating large moves when other conditions come to pass. Okay, let me give you a let me give you a setup case then. Let's say that corn is trading cheap relative to history, but speculator longs are growing in the futures contracts or in whatever month uh is is uh in the front or is being actively traded. Is that a bull signal for you? In isolation? Uh so well, the, the, the smart money in heavy quotes well, is the smart, buying. The, the smart money in the case, the speculators are typically short when you want to buy. The oh, okay. commercials are typically point. long when you want to buy. So what we do is we invert the speculator. Okay, so, that's, that's so what, interesting. We take the shorts, but we invert it. So we add it to the commercials. Um, and there's other entities as well that that have a either a, a pro or against it. And then we take that number and we divide it by the open interest. And there's certain every market has a different DNA marker, meaning there's a different level that that number has to get to before it is historically meant that the market's at a bottom. Now why would you fade the speculators? Why would you trade why would you I, I know that there are many other factors, but in isolation, if specs are short, why would that make you a bit more long bias than usual? Speculators are trend followers. Um, they tend to be most emboldened at the low because a trend has been your friend for so long. And they tend to be most bullish at the top because a trend has been your friend for so long. So extremes in net long or net short positions historically means a trend has tended to have gone as far as it typically goes before the powers that be look at everyone on the one side of the boat and says it's time to revert. And so now, you're saying now, the marginal buyer is gone, basically. It's tapped out. Uh, if if the market's been trending up and specs are fully loaded on the long side and vice versa. And it's also, so another way of looking at it is a lot of times open interest reaches a peak at tops and reaches a trough at bottoms, you know, because that's a measure of capital flowing in. You know, maximum capital flows happen. It's just to give an example. When um, Russia you invaded Ukraine in February, that was the maximum capital flows into the commodity markets and agriculture, that was peak capital flows. They started to sell the month after. And we topped out actually in February, when you look at commodities and overall, we actually topped out in February and made a secondary top in May. Um, and the capitals have been flowing out ever since. Yet when you watch the media, everyone say, well, that's the reason that we now should be buying commodities because Ukraine was invaded by Russia and we we're all going to starve to death. But don't forget, we already had a two-year uptrend going into that, that moment. And so that's at which point we had maximum participation by speculators. Uh, and flip side, we had maximum bearish trading on commercials. And so that was the ideal 
period where one would be looking for the counter trade, the contrarian trade, the trade to go the other way because the cycles of capital flows are suggesting that while the long-term trend may well be higher, as I've been, as I'm trying to persuade because of weather, within that long-term trend, you're going to get some wild, ugly periods of decline. And if you're in futures and options, you know, and you're not careful, uh, you know, you may run out of money before you play the long-term trend. And so that's why you have to be very cognizant of where are we in the capital flow cycle? Where are we in the relative value cycle? And uh, and where are we in the actual climate cycle? You know, is this a time for a breather in weather, which we get, or is this a time for it to kick up? You know, and so all these are factors that go into, you know, when is uh, when is the ideal time that one should be taking a look at a particular market for a particular, in our case, climactic reason, versus you know taking a step back and saying, you know, uh, Sean's idea is great, but right now the marks are not in the right phase to take advantage of it. Perfect. Uh, moving to the next topic, which I think is something you've discussed too. The currencies, obviously they have a big impact because at least say the Brazilian real, the Aussie dollar and so forth, the, the real is kind of the poster child for this, but um, the strength of the, cur the currency relative to say the dollar obviously has a huge impact on crop prices. How do you analyze that and do you only worry about it at extremes, or is it always a factor in in your uh, forward-looking analysis? Currency is most impactful when the currency is moving too fast for the market to react. We talked about how weather volatility moves so fast that the plant can't react. So when when the dollar is going straight up, and no one knows what's going on, and they're watching pricing changing by the hour, by the you know by the day and no one can react. No one, you know, that is what we call, uh, that's, it causes disjointed markets. It causes broken markets. It causes um, gaps in liquidity um, or, you know, or, or gaps in liquidity. So, so when we had this parabolic rise in the dollar this past year and we, you know, when the Fed started to really put the pressure on rates and we really started to see, um, you know, that happened, it, that's really, what set the commodity markets off and really into a more protracted tailspin. Prior to that, the dollar had been moving up, but more gradually, more steadily. But the commodity markets were so were able to kind of adjust and keep themselves fairly well elevated. And then the spike trade came in, the markets then broke apart. So yes, overall level is important, but it's much more important the rate of change of the currency move. So so for example, if the next year the dollar just stays between, let's just say, 105 and 110 and just goes back and forth and back and forth um, and remains at a higher level, the commodity markets can do very, very well because it's it, they'd be able to adjust. Everyone will figure out, all right, the new rules of engagement, here it is. We're not seeing, you know, uh, now- it, So this is it, a bit like the inflation argument, right? Where if inflation popped to 8%, which it has, and then it just flatlined, the economy would adjust, wages would adjust, everything would adjust, and it wouldn't be necessarily devastating. It's just the uncertainty in the forward-looking move that creates well, that's um, why the oil in shock indecision. At, yeah, the oil shock in the 1970s was, it just, you know, it just went through the roof and we couldn't react. The stock market lost half its value. The economy went into deep recession because, you know, you you turned your head around and you're like, my gosh, I can't afford anything. And so it's, it's really the rate of change. But of course, in the 70s, we got used to the higher price level. 
everybody's income's caught up. You know, everybody adjusted their lives and adjusted their consumption habits and, and everyone started figuring out how we could produce more. And yeah. we re-equilibrated. So, so I really view currency in that, in the idea of, of when it's moving too fast for the market to actually take realistic, rational steps versus the actual level it's at. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, I'm not saying 105 versus 85. I mean, there is an overall more there inflationary, is there is a difference, but in terms of the shorter you know difference, it's really about the, the rate of change of the move, either up or down, and how that's impacting with the psychology of the market at that moment in time. Because when you're dealing with highly leveraged positions, which typically is what you're dealing with in futures and commodities, you know it doesn't take much of a move to get this capital out of sync with their risk tolerance, and then then they then unwindings take place. And once unwindings take place, then there's a snowball going down a mountain and, and then the, the situation has to run its course. I see. So if the dollar spikes out of nowhere, that's bearish for commodity prices globally? Correct. Yeah, when, when the at dollar is spiking dollar higher. In dollar terms. Yeah, in dollar terms. Sure. I mean, if you look at uh, uh, price of corn in Brazil Real, you know, maybe it just rises at a slower pace. But in the US dollar terms, yes, that is the case. So high upside vol is bad for commodity prices. In, in in the dollar. High upside vol in or high volatility in weather is actually bullish for commodity prices, uh, at least at a very rough level, because it impacts yields. So volatility kind of has variable effects depending on what's driving driving things. Well, think of it this okay. way. If I'm, a, if I'm a cattle producer, right, and I'm expecting a good corn crop, and so, you know, I don't know, I got three months of corn feed bought, everything's good. I'm not really too worried about it. Then all of a sudden, a one in 100 year drought kicks in and we're looking like production could be down by 30 or 40%. And you're watching prices taking off. That cattle producer now says, oh my gosh, I need more coverage. I am in trouble. I can't afford to feed. So now he wants to buy a year's worth of corn. Just like that, because of the volatility of weather that created the volatility in perceived production that caused the volatility in price that made him change his behavior dramatically. Literally, it could happen just a couple of weeks ago from I'm not interested to I want to buy years with a years with supply of corn, just like that. And that kind of behavior, if every cattle rancher in the US and in Europe are making that same decision, the kind of demand spike you get from a weather spike is monumental in nature. And um, and that's that's the the old herd mentality that you know that that kicks in when no when, pun you know, intended yeah. no no pun intended of course yeah <laughs> gotcha I mean I I'm guessing that your sort of analysis has immense value to farmers who maybe panic if prices have gone down and want to dump all of their inventory to the market uh, you can allow them to play the long game if let's say you think the weather is going to impact yields negatively. Is that the sort of thing where you feel you can add the greatest value or is it more just sort of alpha generation in trades? The long-term planning is important. I, let me give you a, a great example. August 2020, corn hit $3.18 on the spot price. Everybody was bearish. The average prognosticator was projecting 250, 275 corn, 3 billion bushel carryout, no hope, no future. You know, uh, a, a noose on the eighth floor was the best option for a farmer back then. Well, doesn't the average analyst have to take credit for the first third of every move? So they're going to be. Even so, lower? so, so at, at yeah. that moment, at that key moment, 
when everyone was telling the farmer you need to sell because these, these things are so bearish, we turned hyper constructive. Our weather work said that we were just about ready to enter a two-year La Nina based upon our cycles that was going to create significant increase in weather volatility. Um, we believed uh, when we looked at the coming out of the pandemic and the dislocation in the overall just-in-time inventory trade that the demand that would have to come back for most markets, including agriculture, was going to be, you know, everyone's underestimating what that was going to look like. So our recommendation to our cattle producers, our livestock producers, was to buy two years worth of cash feed at that time. And that our farmers should sell only, cash sell only what they absolutely positively had to to keep the farm going or their banker was forcing them to sell. We, our recommendation uh, was to store all the grain they possibly could in bins. If they didn't have the bins, set, you know, sell it and you know, utilize paper to protect themselves to the upside. But you did not, you don't, you didn't want to be someone that sold that first rally to 380 corn and got rid of everything because you were giving the farm away, no pun intended again. <laughs> um, um, and that that was a That's recommendation great. we made, documented in our reports on, you know, on our uh, interviews that we did at that time. And it was an unbelievable recommendation that saved our farmers who listened and followed our recommendation. It saved them huge anguish because so many producers did sell 380 corn and $4 corn only to find out it was seven, $8 six months later after a, after eight years of pretty much losing money prior to that. And so that's to me how if you know, long-term planning can make a very, very, very big difference to those on the farm and those, you know, in, in pr producing, and obviously, obviously, you know, those listening who are in, you know, investors in nature or traders in nature, obviously, could have done quite well, you know, positioning for that kind of a change as well. And it was all predicated on smart money capital flows at that time, having some of the strongest buy signals we have ever seen. Our weather work, like hyper, hyper. As, you know, hyper probability of, of significant multi-year weather volatility coming up. You know, we just had everything lined up for, you know, a a, a what we called a phase transition phase transition kind of a move. You know, where you go from one price level to another. Um, you know, and that isn't something that most people are comfortable doing. Most people just rather go with the trend. Until the trend goes against them long enough, they make them, you know, to when they finally, you know, turn the corner at five dollar corn and say, "Oh, it's bullish now." You know, we don't think that really helps producers out and users out. We think the real way you help people out is to tell them, you know, before a market really gets underway that we're about to do something and give them good reasons why. And also, by the way, give them an out. You know, give them a a risk parameter that if by chance for some reason the weather cycles we discuss. Are delayed or incorrect, make sure that they have an understanding of of a of how they manage that risk in case you know there's there's a there's an imperfection in the forecast. Perfect. Now moving from the farmer to say the family office or the institution or whomever who holds a 60-40 portfolio, stocks and bonds or whatever portfolio, risk parity portfolio, and they're they've kind of, they're thinking of throwing in the towel a bit on that paradigm based on recent performance. Not that they'll get rid of all their stocks or their bonds, but they want to have something else to add. How should they play agriculture? 
Do you have any suggestions for them? I mean, agricultural stocks do tend to outperform stocks at large, um, you know, even during long periods of bear markets, you know, period from 1998 to 2012, the stock market went nowhere, but the agricultural stocks did extremely well. Now, they'll get hit very hard if you have a crash, like 08, you know, I mean, it doesn't mean they're immune to stock market gyrations, but it, it, it's, 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 it, the level of outperformance will be seen in the agricultural space if I'm correct or, or we're correct about the trends in agricultural prices being inflated or being in a more friendly environment for the next 10 or 15 years, which means typically stocks being less favorable for, the, for that period of time. That's, you know, of course you can- there are, are demographics in your favor too, in the sense that if there is a burgeoning middle class, let's say in China and India, they're gonna eat more, potentially eat more protein rich food, and that food will require greater crop supplies in order to uh, um, to be generated, for the food to be generated. Is, are these kind of trends trends that you think are significant as well for investors who wish to put more money in these sorts of stocks? I, I don't believe the long-term trends really matter much because I, the, re the reason I will say that is that we had the same demographic trends from 2010 to 2020 and agriculture were just horrendous place to be for that period of time. They went nowhere, stuck in an ever, never ending bear market. And we had those trends going on. What drives the trends in commodities is once again, a demand that comes out of nowhere, nowhere guns a blazing that the market can't react to. The market's fully aware of these longer term demographic trends. It's adjusted to it. It knows it's there, it's incremental every year. So as an example, like in the 2000s, we had the ethanol, corn ethanol demand spike. that came out of nowhere that really was one of the demand bases that the, took a, a market almost a decade to get its hands around before it did. China in 2000 also had a dem demand spike out of nowhere that the market had a, didn't wasn't able to adjust to right. In the 1970s, Japan coming on to the economic ascension scene, huge demand out of nowhere, you know, just running the market over, not being able to, you know, the market took a while to adjust to that demand. In the 1930s, post-World War II, think of World War II as the whole world was shut down during the war. And then when the war was over, everybody reopened. Think of it as a pandemic. Everybody wanted to buy something all at the same time. We had a demand base that ran over the market for 12 years and it took a while for the market to adjust to that rate of change of demand. So it's really these rate of changes of demand that come out of nowhere that drive these markets higher, not the systemic demographic trends that we all know that keep going. I also thought this was simplistic, a simplistic argument. I was just curious because I have seen it presented and uh... I don't disagree, but where does the added return from agricultural stocks come from then, if it isn't from some secular increase in global demand? Well, I mean, the prices for everything go up. Your seed prices go up. So if you're a seed producer- So the input costs, yeah. If you're a fertilizer producer, your fertilizer prices go up, you're making more. You're able to get ahead of the inflation curve because your prices are going up faster than inflation. So your margins are improving. Whereas in a bear market, you're, you know, it's exactly reversed. If you're, I mean, cash rents, so people who own farmland, who rent it out to farmers, who farm the ground, cash rents going through the roof. You know, your rate of return goes up because the prices that are now 
are able to be paid by farmers who are now getting $8 for their corn versus $3 for their corn allows the whole system to get liquefied, to get, to get larger. It's like blowing into a balloon and increasing the pie for everybody. That's really what drives the returns in the industry is that ability. And then so think places like Cargill or Bungie or ADM, they have this global network. They're able to take advantage of this arbitrage volatility that exists between countries that are inefficient and price something here and sell something there and play the arbitrage because they have these feelers and they can make a killing when price volatility starts to go up. They have a huge advantage because of their, their ability to have this global visibility and taking advantage of that, these dislocations in price volatility, where, in, where when prices are, are not false. So for example, five years ago, corn volatility was 50 year lows. You know, there's not a lot ADM can do to generate arbitrage profits when your corn price volatility is at 50 year lows, not a lot of opportunity. Now, when prices are moving up or down, you know, 20 cents a week, there's all kinds of opportunities for them to take advantage of cash trading, which is what their bread and butter is. So that's really where the outperformance comes from. Um, so, so I always say agricultural industry booms when everyone is busting and agriculture is busting when everyone is booming. It's on the other side of the economic moat. And so from, you know, 2010 to 2020, when the economy was, everyone went stock market, you know, it was, the, you know, farmers were just, struggling to try to, you know, keep it going. And now they're having phenomenal times and everyone is, you know, struggling more and more from the typical dislocations that come from having a inflated price environment that we're in now. Well, I mean, I'm conscious we've taken some time, maybe not quite enough time that the weather has changed so that you have to make a change of recommendation. But um, if there's anything you'd like to conclude with, that would be fantastic. I've really enjoyed it. So let me start with that. I, I, I would like to leave with this concept. I get this question asked to me every time, Sean, you make a complaint, but how do you know these cycles are going to continue to repeat? I don't know that they absolutely positively are going to continue to repeat. I can tell you they've repeated for 300 years or 800 years, or, but I don't know. Okay. But I can look for the signpost that tell me if I'm on the right track or not. And that's how you keep yourself either on the message or off the message. So I'm going to give you a great example. If, if there's a uh, 180 year cycle of line of two year La Nina's going to an El Nino. We're in that cycle right now, meaning that every cycle that I follow that's driven by the, the sun, by the way, the solar cycle of the sun says that, that 2023 should be an El Nino year, which means improved production in North America, South America, big grain production, big increases in ending stocks, such forth and so on. But we have this Tonga eruption that occurred in February. It was a volcanic explosivity index of six. It reached the mesosphere. 30, almost 40 miles in the atmosphere. They hit the mesosphere. That's how powerful it was. And what's interesting is every volcanic eruption we have seen in the last thousand years of this size has been an above ground vo volcano eruption that 
deposited sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere. Now, aerosols, when they get to the stratosphere, they'll stay there for three or four years before they dissipate. Sulfur dioxide blocks the sun from coming in, cools the weather. It also um, allows the, the heat from the Earth's surface to escape. So it produces a very reliable cooling effect. And because land temperature falls faster than sea temperature, it tends to produce westerly winds, which produces El Nino. So those kinds of eruptions have tended to promote El Nino in the following year. This one was an underwater eruption. It didn't deposit sulfur dioxide. It deposited unprecedented amounts of water vapor in the stratosphere. Water vapor also blocks the sun, like sulfur dioxide, but it traps the heat. All the papers that have been written by people way, way smarter than me about this kind of stuff um, believe that this, we literally doubled the concentration of water vapor in the stratosphere in two days from normal. It's extraordinary. Um, that they believe it's going to cause a, a short-term warming effect. So if we play this out, the speculation in the scientific community is that means that if the, the land temperatures are going to warm faster than the sea temperatures, it might delay the onset of El Nino. It might push off this 180-year cycle that I just mentioned to you that has been reliable every single time. It's never failed. But it's possible that this extraordinary eruption that occurred in February might alter or distort the cycle, meaning delay the onset of El Nino. And if we delay the onset of El Nino and we stay into a neutral to La Nina phase in 23, then the one in 100-year, 90-year Gleisberg cycle drought that has verified, by the way, for the last 10 centuries... This 90-year cycle has verified the one in one to 100-year drought in the United States. That means pretty much everybody has drought, pretty much. Um, it means that it would happen in 23 instead of happening in 24, 25. I don't know, and neither do the NASA scientists or anyone else that's written papers on this, because there is no data point that tells us exactly what this is going to do. Once we're through this, we'll have a very good understanding of what a water vapor volcano will do in a stratosphere. So what I'm going to be doing, and what I've been telling all my customers, what I'm going to be doing is saying, look, I know what's supposed to happen if the 100-year cycle is in place. I know where we need to be over the next three months. If we keep tracking down that path, I'm going with the 180-year cycle is going to continue. El Nino is coming. All is well with the world. If we start falling away from that 180-year cycle, I mean, the cycle is diverting from what, what it always has in the past, and it's showing we're not going to get the El Nino in 23. You only need neutral. You don't. You cannot have a drought with El Nino, but you can be neutral or neutral La Nina to have a drought. Then I'm going to be pivoting towards, instead of the drought being 24, 25, which is my, has been my forecast, I'm going to pivot to 23, is actually going to be the year for this instead of 2425 because this volcanic eruption, which clearly has the potential to disrupt cyclical weather, may have an impact of delaying this very reliable cycle. So, so I'm, I'm, uh, it's very so the trade would be long front year grains, short back year, something like that. If something this, like that. Um, yeah. Very interesting. 
So, so, so I, it's important to know what you know and know what we don't. I don't know exactly if this volcano is going to have that impact or not, but enough work has been done and I've read enough papers to know that there's a, there's a possibility that it could. And so, um, so that's really, really important to get that forecast right over the next three months to four months, because that will have a very, very, uh, for, for producers, end users, cattle ranchers, traders, investors will have to do something entirely different if it's going to be a 23 event versus 24, 25. So that's kind of an example of monitoring these the cyclical work, monitoring these correlations and making sure nothing is happening that's diverting from normalcy. Perfect. Well, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks, Sean. Um, I hope we can do it again. Um, and with that, I will hand it back to Niels. Thank you so much, Harry and Sean, for a conversation that I think will blow a lot of people's minds when they hear this. I mean, if you don't think commodities are important and cycles are critical to understand and follow after this period, well, then we just have to try harder. Of course, some of the key takeaways are Sean's view on the sunspot cycle and how he and our previous guest, Simon Hunt, expect it to peak soon and lead to cooler temperatures, which in turn will have a negative impact on how much food we can grow around the world. The importance of the ocean temperatures was also fascinating to learn about and news to me, frankly. And of course, the coming period of weather volatility, just like we're seeing increased volatility in financial markets, should make investors more interested in strategies like trend following that focuses on including commodities in their portfolios. Whether or not we're going back to a cold period like 1965 to 1982, I don't know. But I do know that we need to get Sean back next year for a follow-up conversation. Make sure you go and follow Sean's and Harry's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to learn from people who have been in the trenches for many years, and we really look forward to exploring more of these conversations as our series continue. From Harry and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.